Uh, well, I'm sorry that I'm glad to be here, but I'm sorry that the current uh, limitations on luggage kept me from bringing either a substantial quantity of Carolina blue sky <laughs> or warm weather to you. Uh, it's one of those things that we now like having to take off our shoes when we go to an airplane. Uh, have to put up with. What I want to talk to you about this afternoon grows out of my current major project, which is the post-war visions uh, of World War II leaders. How did they see the world after the war, assuming, of course, that they'd won? From this broader project, uh, I'm taking this afternoon the question of how they expected to draw the boundaries of the post-World War. And uh, since he started, uh, I'll start with Adolf Hitler. Uh, one preliminary remark has to be made before we can intelligently examine Hitler's views during the war. As he had explained already in his second book in 1928, each war was to provide the starting point for the next war. Areas conquered for settlement would make it possible to replace the local population with German agricultural settlers whose numerous offspring would both replace the casualties incurred in conquering the land and provide the troops for the next set of conquerors. What was to happen when the German settlers met on the other side of the after all round earth uh, was something he did not go into any more than orthodox Marxists ever explained what would happen when the state withered away. What is important, however, is that, that the boundaries that were planned for the end of World War II have to be seen as provisional ones in Hitler's eyes. Uh, they would be replaced by uh, more extensive ones uh, after the next uh, in the series. Uh, let me turn now uh, to the ones that he expected after victory in World War II. In the north, Norway and Finland were certainly to be annexed. Denmark and Sweden almost certainly also. In the West, Luxembourg was already annexed to Germany during the war. Holland, large parts of Belgium and France were expected to follow. A German occupation of all of Great Britain, including all of Ireland, was planned. Whether this was to be the prelude to annexation or to some sort of a satellite status is simply not clear from the evidence. Switzerland was to be partitioned, three quarters going to Germany and the southeastern quarter was to go to Italy. In Southeast Europe, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria were to be puppet states under German domination, Yugoslavia and Greece would be partitioned with Italy. In the east, 
all lands to the Urals would be annexed to Germany. That is, that in the future, Germany would get its oil from the Caucasus. The oil of the Middle East was intended for Italy. Come back to that. Germany's colonial empire was to be in the center of Africa as that continent was to be divided into three parts. The northern part would be Italy's, with some German bases on the northwest coast. Germany would take a broad swath across the center from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. This would include not only the former German colonies in the area, uh, but also those of France, uh, Britain, and Belgium, together most likely with the northern parts uh, of the Portuguese colonial possessions. The southern part of Africa uh, was to be under an Africana regime closely aligned, allied possibly with Germany. The future of former German Southwest Africa what we now know as Namibia, was, was not entirely clearly settled, but most likely would go back to the Germans uh, with the Union of South Africa, as it was then known, uh, compensated in a way uh, by the annexation of the former German, of the former British protectorates, uh, as they were then known, they go on along the Swaziland and Zululand. And it would also get the southern parts of Mozambique and Angola, the Portuguese colonial empire. There were different ideas within the German government about the partition of Asia with Japan, and it is precisely because of these differences that we have a pretty clear picture of what was decided. The high command of the German armed forces believed that Germany should control central Siberia to the NSC River, but not take Afghanistan or any part of India. Hitler, however, agreed to the Japanese proposal of a partition of Asia at the 70th degree longitude. And since you probably do not all have immediately in your minds an absolutely clear picture of where that was, let me point out that this means that most of central Siberia would go to the Japanese, but that Germany would acquire Afghanistan and what came to be Pakistan uh, after the war. This gives you some idea uh, of where that line goes. And of course, everything to the east uh, would go to Japan. The German diplomats in Tokyo had already, but without fully informing Berlin, agreed to the turning over to Japan of all of Germany's former colonial possessions in the Pacific. Uh, and uh, there were already, it seems to me, plenty of difficulties in German-Japanese relations uh, to assure that there would be plenty of friction in the post-war era. It is not clear, at least not to me, from the available sources, how the German government saw the future of North America. In Imperial Germany, there had been a lengthy argument over whether the conquest of North America 
should begin with landings on the coast of Cape Cod or the coast of Long Island. But the second empire had a very large navy, while the third Reich had first to build one. In his second book, Hitler had explained that preparing for war with the United States would be one of the most important tasks of a Nazi government. It's therefore entirely consistent with these views that as soon as the weapons systems needed for war with Britain and France were well along the production in 1937, he ordered in that year both the building of a blue water navy and of intercontinental bombers, sometimes referred to as America bombers, sometimes as New York bombers, ordered by the, from the German aircraft industry. Although a great deal of work had been done on these projects by September 1939, neither was ready. There was therefore plenty of time for later planning. The plans for Latin America had also not progressed very far. It is not clear just how the large communities of people of German background in South America were to fit into German planning. Furthermore, there is, as far as I know, simply no evidence to show whether or not Hitler was ever informed about the extensive planning within the Nazi party circles about Patagonia, the southernmost portion of Argentina. Why there was this fascination with Patagonia, please don't ask me about it, because I don't know. But what we don't know in addition is whether or not this was done sort of autonomously or, or whether Hitler was in some way aware of it. In the meantime, the German government had to concentrate on the need for a blue water navy and intercontinental bombers. Now, it was also clear that in this whole business, the Germans would have to deal again with Japan. And I will come back to that as well. It is, however, in my opinion, not a coincidence that after the German victory in Western Europe in 1940, and their thinking in 1941 in the summer that the war in the East was going well, immediately the first decision always was to go back to the construction of the Blue Water Navy. Let me turn to Benito Mussolini next. Most of Italy's planned annexations uh, have already been uh, alluded to. In addition to parts of Switzerland, Mussolini expected to take Corsica and substantial other portions of France. Major parts of Yugoslavia and of Greece, of course, uh, were to be annexed. And uh, if you then look at the map, uh, since the Italians had already annexed Albania, this would make for a completely Italian strip of controlled territory from Venice down into the Aegean to the Dardanelles Islands. The future of Turkey was, as far as I can tell from the records, not yet settled between the Axis powers, but Mussolini certainly hoped to include it in Italy's domain. In any case, 
All of French North and Northwest Africa would become Italian, as would Egypt and what was then called the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan. The British and French portions of Somalia, as well as Kenya, would be would then round out uh, Italy's existing empire in Northeast Africa. There was to be, furthermore, a most important addition to Italy's empire. The bulk of the Middle East would be under Italian control. It was from this region that Italy would draw its oil while the Germans got theirs from the Caucasus. Let me turn next to Tojo Hideki. When we turn to Japan, there's a serious problem. In the case of Tojo, there is a simple fact that the literature on the central figure in the Japanese government from October 1941 to July 44 focuses on his role in the decision of Japan to go to war with the United States, Great Britain, and the Netherlands, his fall from power in the summer of 1944, and his attempted suicide and trial in 1945. In spite of Tojo's central role in the first years of the war in the Pacific, neither Japanese historians nor those of other countries have examined in any detail his actions, hopes, and policies during that critical period, as I said, from July from July of 1941 uh, until July of 44. But because Tojo was not only prime minister, but in addition insisted on holding on to the Ministry of War that he had taken over already, as I said, in July of 41 and directed with an iron hand thereafter. The planning that did take place there surely gives us some indication of his thinking. Certainly Tojo's well-deserved reputation as a stickler for detail, a very hard worker, and a man inclined to deal ruthlessly with any in the bureaucracy with ideas contrary to his own. All of this makes it, in my opinion, very unlikely that the plans made in the war ministry were thought by those who drew them up to be anything other than a reflection of their master's concepts. According to the War Ministry's planning in the winter of 1941-42, Japan would control not only Korea, China, the Philippines, the other areas already conquered or soon to be conquered in the Central and South Pacific, but in addition, Australia, New Zealand, Ceylon, Alaska, the provinces and territories of Western Canada, the state of Washington, all of Central America, Colombia and Ecuador in South America, together with a group of islands in the Caribbean, Cuba, Haiti, Jamaica, and others. What Castro would think of being a member of the Great East Asian called Prosperity Sphere. <laughs> Macau and the Portuguese portions of Timor were to be purchased. 
monarchies <coughs> under Japanese control on the model of the puppet state of Manchukuo were to be established in the Dutch and British parts of Indonesia, <coughs> which is now Indonesia, in Malaya, <coughs> in Burma enlarged at the expense of India, Thailand, Hanan, and Cambodia. As already mentioned, the Tojo government expected that most of India and the eastern half of the Soviet Union would also be allocated to Japan. Let me turn to John Kaiser. When compared with these rather extravagant ambitions of the Tojo regime, uh, those of the nationalist government of China under John Kaiser uh, looked rather modest. <laughs> John took it for granted that all parts of China, and especially Manchuria, that had been seized by Japan would be returned to full Chinese control. He also expected that territories taken by Japan in, at the end of the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95, this primarily meant Formosa, as Taiwan was then called, would also be returned to Chinese control, a point on which he had the support of Churchill and Roosevelt. Zhang hoped that Hong Kong would be returned to China before the date specified by treaty, but on this Churchill <coughs> was of a very different view, subject of return to. There are substantial indications that John had some ambitions that extended further. As an internationally recognized great power, a point on which Roosevelt was especially insistent, China could hope to exercise considerably, considerable influence on a restored independent Korea and on the states that were expected to emerge as independent out of what was then French Indochina. <coughs> Zhang was not interested in playing a major role in the occupation of Japan, but it appears to have been assumed that there would be a Chinese participation in a temporary occupation most likely of the home island of Shikoku. In this regard, as in many others, the development in East Asia would move in very different directions, even though China was one of the world's victims. Return to Charles de Gaulle. Of the powers that were allied with China, uh, there are reasons why I prefer to put it on first. Many of the relevant records are still not accessible. The Gauls records for pre-39 and post-45 are accessible, but not those for the war years. There are, however, some fairly clear indications from available records and some other materials. The Gaul assumed, as a matter of course, that all of the French pre-war colonies and possessions would be returned to her. In spite of the promise to the people of Syria that the mandate would be replaced by independence, de Gaulle in fact retained a firm adherence to the opposite view. The artillery bombardment of Damascus presumably shattered all illusions to this regard. De Gaulle further appears to have entertained hopes for an expansion of the prior French colonial empire. There are clear signs 
that he hoped to annex the southern part of the Italian colony of Libya to the adjacent French colonies. This has nothing to do with the discovery of oil in Libya, something that didn't occur until years later. It's simply a traditional vision of war. The loser gives territory to the winner. In my opinion, the attempt of the Gaul to annex the Vida Osta in northwest Italy for France has to be seen in the same context. The France of 1939 was no more in need of additional glaciers than it was short of African desert. <laughs> On the Vida Osta issue, the Gaul would run to exceedingly bitter confrontation with the new American president, Harry Truman, in 1945. One can, however, safely assume that Roosevelt would have adopted the same stance on this issue as Truman. It is not clear from the accessible record whether de Gaulle thought of expanding French Somaliland, Djibouti, at the expense of adjacent Italian Eritrea. Similarly, it is not certain, but most probable, that he would have required the return to French Indochina of the portions of that territory that were ceded to Thailand uh, during World War II. In regard to Germany, de Gaulle's views during and right after the war were entirely different from the way they would develop in subsequent years. I'm talking now only about his views during the war. Like his Western allies, he thought of the incorporation of the Saar territory into the French economic sphere. Beyond that, a new unit of some type was to be created in Germany's industrial Ruhr area and the left bank of the Rhine, including Cologne. This was to be a state separated from Germany and in some way under French influence. He was also in favor of some sort of confederation of German states of which Baden and Württemberg, the two in the southwest, would be aligned with France. France would take part in the occupation of Germany and utilize its position to preclude the creation of any new German central government. We come now to Joseph Stalin. Here, too, there are serious problems with the sources. As the late General Dmitry Volkobonov assured me in 1991, the detailed regular record of Stalin's decisions that either Stalin's private secretary, Poskrebyshev, or a subordinate of the latter must have kept, was either destroyed or placed in a spot where no one's been able to find it. There are, however, records kept by others and a series of decisions of Stalin that's known. We know that in the Winter War against Finland, the Red Army occupied the area around Petsamo, including Finland's only port on the Arctic Ocean, as well as the Nikomars. In the peace of March 1940, almost, almost all of this territory was returned to Finland. Only the western bit of the Riparchi Peninsula was retained by Sardinia. Once Finland joined Germany in war against the Soviet Union in June 1941, Stalin insisted 
in all of his conversations with Western allies that the Petsamo area would have to be annexed to the Soviet Union. When he held it, he gave it up. When he did not have it, he insisted on obtaining it. At a time when he still hoped to stay out of the war, he was prepared to help the Germans conquer Norway, but wanted no common border in the north with Norway or Germany. Once Germany had attacked his country, he was willing to do his allies the favor of allowing Finland to remain independent, but without a port on the Arctic. The other borders with Finland, on the other hand, would be essentially those of the March 1943. The western border of the Soviet Union was also to be returned to that of June 1941 with two significant exceptions. In addition to the 1940 annexation of the three Baltic states, during the first part of the fighting on the Eastern Front, Stalin wanted to annex a small portion of the former German East Prussia. This was the city of Tilsit, now called Sovietsk. Since the Memo area was, in any case, to be incorporated into the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic, as indeed it was, it may be assumed that this addition was also going to go to the Lithuanian SSR. Most of East Prussia, including its main city and port of Königsberg, was to be annexed to Poland in Stalin's view. During the war, Stalin changed his mind and demanded the annexation of the northern half of East Prussia. Poland was to be compensated for the loss of Königsberg by the annexation of Stettin on the western side of the Oder River, that is at Germany's expense. It's my opinion that this was Stalin's response to the policy of Roosevelt that the latter had also forced on the British of non-recognition of Soviet annexation of the Baltic states. Under these circumstances, Stalin wanted to be absolutely sure. The part of East Prussia annexed to the Soviet Union was not to be incorporated into the Lithuanian SSR, but rather became an oblast, the province of the Russian Federated Soviet Republic, and the territory, under the name of Kaliningrad Oblast, is still a part of the Russian Federation today. In this fashion, this land was to become a staple, holding the Baltic states under Soviet control. Whether or not my explanation is correct, the arrangement of the border has survived the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The second exception on the western border was to be the one with Poland. Here Stalin made concessions to Poland at the northern and southern end of the Soviet-German line that had divided Poland in 1939. Although Stalin would not agree to Roosevelt's repeated requests that Lvov, call it what you want over there, Flamdog, or a number of other pronunciations, 
they returned to Poland, Stalin was willing to make some concessions, especially the area around Białystok. But these concessions were to go to a new communist government for Poland or Stalin's creation, a new government along with a new army also formed in the Soviet Union. It was to this region that the southern half of this, that this regime, that the southern half of East Prussia, all of German lands east of the Oder and western Neisse River, plus Stalin as compensation for Königsberg, were to be turned over and without their German inhabitants. The former free city of Danzig, which had belonged to Poland until 1493, was also to be returned to that state. The incorporation of Galicia into the Soviet Union, that is the southern part of this eastern Polish area, would for the first time provide the Soviet Union with a common border with a revived Czechoslovakia that was expected to emerge from Germany's defeat. This country was expected to see its easternmost portion, Ruthenia or Karpatha, Ukraine as it was called, to the Soviet Union. As far as one can tell, this annexation of portions of the territory of an ally of the Soviet Union in the war had two important advantages from Stalin's perspective. In the first place, it would provide a barrier to any strivings for independence among Ukrainians by incorporating the one remaining outside area with substantial Ukrainian population within the USSR. Secondly, the annexation made for a major change in the political and strategic situation in Southeast Europe. The Soviet Union would hereafter have a common border with Hungary and would control passes through the Carpathian Mountains. From the perspective of Czechoslovakia, this painful loss of territory could be seen as averting an even more dramatic loss. The Soviet regime had been the only one on Earth outside of the Axis that had recognized the supposed independence of the puppet state of Slovakia created by the Germans in 1939. In the first place, this action had shown that the Soviet Union had no interest, no interest, in the territorial integrity of Czechoslovakia. For the future, it opened up the possibility that Slovakia might follow the Baltic states into the Soviet Union as an additional Soviet Socialist Republic. In Southeast Europe, Stalin expected to regain the territory taken from Romania in 1940, as well as the Danube Islands seized by the Red Army. But his ambitions and plans went beyond the 1941 situation. He hoped that the cession of the port of Alanzopolis by Greece would provide the Soviet Union with a port on the northern coast of the Aegean Sea. He expected Turkey to yield bases on the Straits and a large part of northeast Turkey as well. Iran 
was to give up its northwestern province to the Soviet Union. It is too often forgotten that it was to a large extent these aspirations of Stalin that played a major role in the beginnings of the Cold War. One should also mention Stalin's request for bases on Spitsbergen and the mandate for portion of Italian North Africa. Now I have to turn to the Far East. The long-range plans of Stalin in this direction are very difficult to unravel. To what extent he expected to obtain and keep control of Manchuria is hard to discern, as is the possibility that he changed his mind about this during the latter part of World War II. In any case, the Liaodong Peninsula with Dairen and Port Arthur was to go to the Soviet Union. Beyond the return of the Kuril Islands in the northern half of Sakhalin, both agreed to by Churchill and Roosevelt, Stalin appears to have had further ambitions. The occupation, annexation, and expulsion of all Japanese inhabitants from several small islands off the northern coast of Hokkaido that had belonged to Japan in the past, an issue that still roils relations between Russia and Japan today, is difficult to understand unless there were originally plans behind this that looked to further expansion. Whether these plans included the annexation of Hokkaido is simply not clear. In any case, that island was to have been in the Soviet zone of Japan if Japan, like Germany, fought to the bitter end and again, like Germany, was divided into zones of occupation. Let me turn to Winston Churchill. He never had the slightest doubt that all British colonies that had been at any time or any means occupied by the Axis would be returned to British control along with the Channel Islands, of course. This expectation influenced his view of the last stages, strategy for the last stages of the Pacific War. He wanted to go beyond warding off all the hopes of John and Roosevelt for an end of the colonial system. He didn't just want to go back to the status quo. He wanted to convert the mandates assigned to Britain as well as other powers at the end of World War I into colonial possessions, as when we will see exactly the opposite of Roosevelt's concept. Beyond this, at at least one spot, Churchill wanted to expand Britain's colonial empire. To the north of Malaya, he wanted to annex the southern part of Thailand, have it incorporated into Malaya in order to create a contiguous territorial connection between Burma and Malaya. In this instance, it's almost certain that he was influenced by the planning for Operation Matador that had loomed large in discussions of the defense of Malaya, but had not been implemented. On the other hand, it fits in with his general approval of the colonial system, that he countered most sharply all American doubts about the restoration of the French and Dutch colonial empires, and that he favored, he favored, <coughs> an American annexation of the islands in the Pacific uh, that had been allocated to Japan after World War I, 
And that's an issue I will come back to also. But I think his belief that another piece of Thailand could simply be incorporated into Malaya to provide a land bridge is, in a certain way, the way of gaining insight into that turn of the 19th to the 20th century imperial position in which Churchill lived for the rest of his life. As for boundaries in Europe, he had no objections to the Soviet annexation of the Baltic states. Only Roosevelt's pressure had kept them from extending formal recognition. As long as Finland remained independent, he was not interested in the details of its boundaries. He hoped for an eastern border of Poland that was not very far from the one I've described, although like Roosevelt, he would have preferred for Poland to keep a bit more of its pre-1939 areas. Like his allies, he had been persuaded by the stupid interwar propaganda of the Germans that East Prussia should never be returned to Germany. In fact, this would be the only point on which the three major allies agreed during the war on the position that they would instruct their delegates to follow at the peace conference then expected to follow soon after the war. As regards Germany itself, he, he would rather have seen Poland move not quite so far to the west. Like Roosevelt, and I'll come back to this shortly, Churchill preferred an economic reorientation of Germany along the lines Henry Morgenthau recommended. A relatively high standard of living like, ho living like Holland and Denmark, but without heavy industry. Churchill repeatedly utilized the expression, quote, fat but impotent. This, however, would be feasible only if Germany were allowed to retain most of its agrarian lands in the east. If these were to be taken away by the imposition of the Oder-Neisse line, the project could not be implemented. The concept to utilize the terminology of the time was too soft, not too hard on the Germans. Stalin's opposition and insistence on the Oder-Neisse line rendered it impossible. On Germany's western border, Churchill, as already mentioned, favored detaching the south area and turning it over to France. He had a division of Germany into occupation zones drafted that placed Berlin, which itself was to be ruled jointly by the Allies, into the middle of the Soviet zone. In any case, England was to have the northwest zone and early on he expected there would be a French zone of occupation as well. Since the British knew that Roosevelt's plans were entirely different, Churchill had his plan for the division between East and West presented in the European Advisory Commission, where it was immediately accepted by the Russians. Thereafter, the two powers would work to bring the Americans around. It was assumed that there would be a British zone of occupation in Japan, if the Japanese followed the German example of fighting until the whole country, or practically the whole country, was occupied during hostilities. Let me turn to Franklin Roosevelt. The hopes of the American president were in many ways different from those of his allies. He did not want the United States to annex any territory whatsoever. The Philippines were to become independent in accordance with legislation he had himself signed. 
Against the advice of his chiefs of staff, he saw the islands conquered from the Japanese as under trusteeships, a new form of the post-World War I mandate system. Furthermore, he envisioned a direction for the European colonial empires that was the exact opposite of that advocated by Churchill. All the other colonies were to become trust territories on the road to independence. There would be no colonial empires in the future at all. And even if Roosevelt, especially in regard to India, did not push Churchill too hard, as Churchill threatened to resign, his own views were and remained entirely clear. Italy's former colonies were also, under no circumstances, to be incorporated into the colonial empires of other countries. They, too, would move to the trusteeship category to independence. Like Churchill, he believed that Yugoslavia should obtain some territorial concessions from Italy and that the Dodecanese islands were to go to Greece. But in other respects, his views about the future arrangements of Europe were quite different. He had refused to recognize the annexation of the Baltic states by the Soviet Union and had restrained the British government from doing so by massive pressure. <coughs> As already mentioned, he hoped and tried until the last moment to secure some additional territory, especially the city of the Poland. Like Churchill, he would have preferred an economic reorientation for Germany toward agriculture, but like Churchill, had to abandon this idea in the face of Stalin's insistence on the organized line. He had his own views on the division of Germany into zones, and these differed fundamentally from Churchill's. Already in 1942, he had commented that American soldiers should be first into Berlin. The division into zones that he prepared in 1943 provided that the eastern and western zones would meet in Berlin. The American zone of occupation was to be in the northwest of Germany. The memory of American troops isolated in the Philippines was a terrible one and he did not want American forces to depend on communications across a possibly chaotic France. In the face of Anglo-Soviet agreement on the East-West Division, he eventually agreed to that line after lengthy negotiations in 1944 and accepted the southern zone when the British ceded a special enclave around Bremen and Bremerhaven and an American-controlled railway connection from there to the American zone. The phrase at the time was that the Russians got the agriculture, British got the industry, the Americans got the scenery. He also agreed to one further change at the beginning of 1945. A French zone of occupation that at Stalin's insistence was to be carved out of the Western zones. A special arrangement was to be made for Berlin, but the details of this were not worked out until after Roosevelt's death. The Allies agreed in 43 that Austria would be re-established as an independent state in the borders of 1938. It was also agreed, still in Roosevelt's lifetime, that it would be divided into four zones of occupation with a special arrangement for Vienna. <coughs> Albania was to regain its independence. At the Cairo conference, Roosevelt had promised John Karshek that all territories taken by Japan would be returned to China. The same thing was to apply to alliance taken by Japan from Russia. Korea was to become independent. There's no clear proof of this, 
but it may be assumed that the president expected that Japan would be occupied with an American zone of occupation in the central portion of the home islands. If we look at the world today, we can see that many of the hopes and decisions of the World War II era determined today's borders. All the plans of the powers of the tripartite pact came to naught. John was driven to Taiwan, and de Gaulle changed his policies. Stalin's empire retains many of the borders which, that were intended for it, but fell apart once the legitimacy it had acquired by the successful defense against German aggression and trade. The worldwide empire in which Churchill had grown up and which remained his lodestar throughout the war has vanished. Same thing has happened to all the other colonial empires with very minimal exceptions. All this went forward more rapidly than the American president anticipated. But he alone of the eight leaders correctly anticipated the direction developments were likely to take. Since he was always an optimist, he would have been surprised much less today than the others. Thank you. The floor is open to questions. Yes, sir. I'm wondering if you could comment, uh, first off, thanks for coming. We really appreciate that. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment from your research on Hitler's long-term goals for Spain, Franco-Spain, please. At one point in time, there was a, a sense in which Germany not only supported and helped but Franco in his civil war operations. But there was always friction. The, the Germans would not provide as much help as Franco wanted. Furthermore, they were very upset at what they thought was not a very effective military operation. In the summer of 1940, Franco wanted to join the Germans in the war. The Germans threw over this opportunity because they insisted that they must have bases on and off the coast of Northwest Africa, including territory that either was or would become Spanish. Whatever else anybody thinks about Franco, I don't think there can be any serious dispute that he was a Spanish nationalist. Nobody was going to get a square centimeter of Spanish law. He was prepared to lease bases to the Germans. Okay? He was prepared to let them use bases in Spain. And German submarines in World War II did. But the idea of the Germans insisting they were going to have bits for bases, which they wanted for the, the, the deal with the Western Hemisphere, that was out. And on that basis, and for that reason, uh, Spain did not enter the war on Germany's side in 1940. Now, from Hitler's point of view, this, of course, showed what inferior, degenerate South Europeans 
Franco and his crew were. That instead of uh, sort of measuring up to German standard, his standard, okay, these people were unreliable. They didn't know how to fight very well. They weren't prepared to come in. They were not fully prepared to provide Germany with the bases it would need to cope with the Western Hemisphere. And that just showed what dolts they were. And in that context, therefore, one has to assume that the beginnings of German economic penetration of Japan, of Spain, that was a part of their investment in Spain during the Civil War and thereafter, would have eventuated into some kind of either subordinate position for Spain or, or its annexation. Furthermore, at the time we're talking about. Spain's colonial possessions would, in German planning, have fallen to Italy in the north, and Rio Muni, that is on the Guinea coast, would have been in the German colonial <laughs> stretch. And there I'll have to admit to you, Franco pulled a boo-boo. Uh, that is to say, he wanted an expansion of that at the expense of French Cameroons, but of course the French Cameroons were the former German colony of Cameroons. And the notion of the Germans being asked by the Spaniards to turn over parts of their former colony to expand Spanish Guinea, okay, that did not go over big in Berlin, let me put it that way, okay? So there were a number of areas where, from the perspective of Hitler and his immediate associates, Franco and company fell very short indeed. Yes, sir. We talked a lot about the territorial aims of this new order that the Tripartite Pact would have constructed had they won. Well, what would have been some of the governance structures? Let's say a Pax Germanica. What was that? Well, how would Hitler have changed? Did he say anything about how he would have changed the rules, the norms, sort of governance structures of international relations uh, in terms of trade and other things? Well, on the trade issue, uh, Germany was going to run all areas of Europe. There was, and this was very, very clear from the summer of 1940 on, and a trade with the rest of the world insofar as any of it was left independent you know, by bilateral agreements on the basis actually of a pattern that had been pretty much developed by the Germans in the 1930s already. Now, in addition to that, there was to be certainly under no circumstances what you and I would call international organization. In just the opposite of the enormous interest of President Roosevelt in reversing America's withdrawal from an opposition to international organization, and his very deliberate creation of a number of the international structures like the United Nations Relief and Reconstruction Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, the uh, UNESCO, the World Health Organization, uh, plans for 
uh, international aeronautics things 